0: Issue for all
1: women. Hello, Jen here to tell you about this week's episode of the Sunday Chops. This week I'm having a chat with the extremely charming journalist Nell Frizzell about her new book, The Panic Years, a hilarious and candid memoir about her experience of the flux, or rather, the period between adolescence and menopause when women are asked to make, as she puts it, the mother of all decisions. We chatted about fertility, how we're not talking about it, or even bothering to research it properly and how all of the responsibility around it is foisted upon women, about the myths around male and female sexuality and the power dynamics it creates, and about the harrowing early days of parenthood and why the government is fucking them all up. Nell was excellent fun, so I do hope you enjoy this as much as I enjoyed chatting to her. I'm joined by journalist and author of the new book, The Panic Years, Nell Frizzell. Hello, Nell. Hello. Hello lovely to see you how are you I'm very well and you
0: I'm good yeah,
1: I'm yeah. fine. high yeah. on life you've, you've got a new book out that's exciting <laughs> yeah I'm high on an orange book flavoured life it's
0: okay I think I have to basically be honest and say compared to a you know a medic or a teacher or any anyone in a key worker job I'm having an okay time you know and um I'm very lucky
1: your partner lucky. is a key worker isn't he? He's I think I read a a, a a column you wrote this week. Yeah. About.
0: So he's upstairs right now explaining how to do long division uh, to a screen.
1: <laughs> wow. <laughs> to a
0: bunch of 10 year olds. And then he goes in, they alternate every other week. He goes in and teaches the vulnerable and key children.
1: Now, I mean, this is really off topic, but I'm just, you've mentioned long division now. So let's roll with it. <laughs> do you know how to do long division?
0: Absolutely not. No, I no. don't. I still love maths in the way that I kind of love peeling an orange and that it's very satisfying if you can do it, but what does it achieve? You still, you know, Good point. I, I don't use it enough in my life, but it, the sort of, it was a bit like playing tennis and that there was a certain satisfaction and regularity to it, but I don't use it. Anymore.
1: I think I would have found being able to play tennis more useful than long division, which I still don't know how to do. Um, I can do a percentage for you though, so that's
0: good. See, I, those I can't do. They're actually, absolutely not they're actually
1: quite helpful percentages
0: i'm sure in the adult world mm. like percentages are, are really helpful but i just go through the world in a sort of fumbling vague state of half quarter and more or less that's all i work on
1: <laughs> Fair enough. probably stretch to a third right sure yeah
0: sure there are three people in my house and I'd be extremely reluctant to cut anything wheat into a third because that means that my son is getting as much as me. And that's not fair. Mm. He's tiny. <laughs> Good
1: point. Good point. Well, I think, you know, you've mentioned him now, you've mentioned your son. So maybe we'll, maybe we'll Sorry. get on with what we're actually supposed to be talking about, which is of course your book, <laughs> The Panic Years. So now, could you tell us a little bit about what The Panic Years is about?
0: To start at the beginning, At about 28, like millions of other people, I had what felt like a sort of personal crisis of circumstance, where I broke up with a long-term partner, I got made redundant, I had to move back in with my mum, and because my mum got the menopause at 40, I genuinely wondered if that was the version of my future that I thought I was going to have throughout my 20s was gone. I thought, you know, how, is it possible that I'm going to meet someone and have a baby and is that actually something I want? And is that the right thing for the world? And it threw up a lot of questions. And at the time, I remember thinking, God, I really want to write something about this because it felt like it was happening all around me. There were people who were changing country or changing job or coming out of massive relationships or getting married or then the big one getting pregnant. And it felt like we were all in a seismic process that had no name, None of us had been prepared for it. There wasn't really much of it on, in sort of popular culture or on screen or in, even in novels. And I really wanted to write about it, but I was so in the heart, the sort of sticky, palpating heart of it, that I don't think I would have done it justice. It was only when I had a baby at 33 that I suddenly looked back and it was like, you know, if you pull away from a very tall building you can't see it at the bottom you can't see the top of the building with the bottom of it but as you pull away it sort of rises up behind you like a rocket I suddenly realized that what had been partially responsible for my life going bananas at 28 was this overwhelming question about female fertility getting your life sorted being the one in charge and responsible for how you dictated your life you know, if you're in the very privileged situation that I was, where I had a certain amount of sort of choice and freedom. And I realised that that arc was really fundamental to the way women live their lives. And we still don't have a name for it. We still are a bit shy about talking about it because it's sort of politically a bit complicated and incredibly sensitive and personally messy. And I thought this, this needs a name. And I wanted to call it the flux. And in the book, I sort of talk about the process as being the flux. But that period, and for me, it was sort of five years from 28 to 33, can hit at any time. And I think, if you know, some people, they'll be in their 40s, some people in their early 20s. But at the moment, the average age for a woman to have her first child in the UK is 30.6 years. So it's just hit 30. And so I would be surprised if there weren't a lot of women between 28 and 33 who are having this conversation or having these thoughts and so with an editor we came up with the title the panic is because they did feel quite panicked and the big question is why are you panicking where does that panic come from how can we lessen it who should be sharing it whose responsibility is it so in effect it's a memoir Uh, the book is a memoir of that time and it's very funny no but it should be funny (laughs) (laughs) it is hopefully funny And it's also incredibly revealing, which I only really noticed when my ex-boyfriend and mum were reading it. But it also asks, hopefully, some quite important questions. And if I'm asking them, that means that readers don't have to feel like they're the only person asking them. And they don't even have to individually ask the people in their lives. They can just read the book together and I will bring up the sort of taboos myself to make it easier for everybody else. And the big question is, how do we decide whether or not to have children? Who makes that decision? And is it made fairly? And I think, no, it's not fair. There's still so much inequality about that. You know, there's so much injustice, inequality, the financial kind of circumstances are so dictated by your race and culture and background and level of education. The biological sort of circumstances are arbitrary and misunderstood and under-researched it's it's really complicated so I thought I'd wade on in there with my big orange book and and tell everyone what I think (laughs)
1: okay so one of the things that you say in it is the question about whether or not you're going to have a child becomes the baseline to everything in your life and I think that I I kind of agree with that that it does seem to be that way for most women obviously you know hashtag not all women but um for a lot of mm. women that does become even if you ultimately decide you don't want them, it does you know, it does dictate a lot of, of, of the decisions you make at that time. But one of the things people might argue and by the way, I, I don't agree with this because I've read the book and, and so I know where you're coming from, but one of the things people might say is that writing a book about women of a certain age kind of longing for a baby might seem a little bit reductive Mm. so how do you how do you approach this in a way that isn't reductive
0: I would sort of say you know your phrase even if you ultimately decide that you don't want to have children I think even if you know from the very moment that you have the language and ability to communicate that you don't want to have children you are still going to be asked if you want to have children all the bloody time and you are going to be around people who are having children or trying to have children or, you know, in the process of getting pregnant. And maybe those pregnancies don't go to full term. It's, you know, it is at a certain time in your life, it's not just wallpaper. It is like the tracks that we're running along and it makes a huge impact on people's lives. And so I think to write a book where I say a lot of women will be thinking about whether or not to have children hopefully doesn't reduce that. It just sort of brings into the open something I think for completely understandable reasons for maybe a generation or two we didn't want to talk about. My mum always knew she wanted to have children but she had to fight to be respected as a working woman, as a professional woman, as an intellectual woman, as an equal to the men in her life and because of the way that we construct parenthood in this country and the way that the workplace is organized, those two things are sort of in conflict, Mm. which I find appalling. And so there has been this idea for a long time that to be a quote unquote, rational, ambitious, aspirational woman, you should tuck away your maternal desire your womb your hormonal reality your fluctuating mood your desires for a quote unquote traditional outcome you know I think why like why did I think that saying to people as a single 29 year old yeah I'd really like to have children would make them run for the hills whereas if I said yeah I think I'd quite like to like go and live in a yurt in Mongolia that would be seen (laughs) as quite cool and interesting and actually I don't believe in the biological determinism that we all have an inbuilt desire for children. Of course we don't. And there are like better people than me that can prove that. But I do think if you have that biological impulse or that hunger, and it was like a fever for me, like an absolute desperate hunger that is like the hottest thirst and the most raking horniness and the most like desperate exhaustion. Like it, physically felt compelling in a way that I've never known anything else I wanted to feel my skin stretch and my muscles pull apart and to suckle a child and to heave a body out of my body and to look down and see a body transformed I wanted all of that I wanted to leak and I wanted to rip and I wanted to howl and all of that stuff and I kind of had felt in my 20s like that made me boring, crass, old-fashioned or gross. And I think that is a really sad picture of the kind of corners you can paint yourself into, where you feel like there has to be a certain version of womanhood or femininity or just personhood. And one of the things that I've really loved in writing the book and doing other research for other projects is finally hearing Men say, God, I'm broody. I was really broody. Or I spoke to a man the other day who said, my greatest ambition in life has been to be a dad. And we don't think that is reductive. And yet to say it as a woman is sort of seen as somehow betraying a certain a certain uh, version of feminism. And I think we can surely open that definition up a bit more so it can include motherhood, too.
1: I think it's very interesting because one of the people you you talk to in the book is Dolly Alderson. Mm. And I I wish I'd written the quote down. No, I haven't. But she basically says something along the lines of how our politics have kind of outgrown our biology, basically. So our biology is that we we can only have children for a finite period of time. But Mm. now, obviously, you know, we were fed, I think a lie about you know you, you can have it all I'm sure other people would have different opinions on that I mean you can have it all but you you know it's it's hard I have a seven-month-old daughter myself so bloody hell yeah so I'm just sort of learning how hard it is to you know have a full-time job and a small child
0: but, but just to go back to that Dolly quote I interviewed a writer and psychologist and my friend Eleanor Morgan in the book who said this brilliant thing which is there are two truths in life like one is that you'll die and one is that you'll run out of the chance to have children and there is no way around that like it will happen to men and women at some point you might never have been able to have children and or you might only discover that at 22 or you might discover it at 35 or your menopause might hit at 40 or 50 but at some point you are no longer able to have children Mm. and the stance that you know feminism and capitalism likes us to take is No, no. If you do certain things and you invest in certain ways and you believe hard enough and work hard enough, you can have everything forever. Mm. And sadly, that's bollocks. You can't. There is a deadline on certain things. And the way that we make that deadline less problematic for people is to change the culture and nature of other related things like work and the cost of childcare and the way we think about education and the discriminations around race and class and age and you know those things if we could fix that then the fact that you have a biological deadline in like a literal egg counter Mm. in your body wouldn't be the problem quote unquote that we see it as now you know I remember an interview with Jess Phillips the MP where she talks about how she, because she had her children very young, she was able to have this really illustrious and inspirational political career in her thirties and forties. Just as all of her peers were in the stage we're in now, mm. where you're like wading through bodily fluids and exhaustion and yeah. like you know broken nipples and like broken nights. And I think, yeah, the, the fact that there was a biological deadline to baby making shouldn't mean that a woman can't become an MP in her 30s and 40s. It just might mean that we think about women having children in their 20s a little bit differently. <laughs> Jacinda Ardern, who took her baby into the UN, like, there, are, there are so many different ways to do it. Mm. And I think, like, yes, maybe it does appear to some people as reductive to write a whole book about the, a woman's desire to have a baby. But without admitting that, how do people like Jacinda Ardern come about you know uh, how do we have inspirational maternal figures in the world unless we talk about the fact that some women want to have children and some women don't and some men want to have children and some men don't and I was fed such a such a lie in my teens and 20s that men are these like commitment phobic sexually voracious beings and women were the stop on male fun and casual sex and sort of ambition
1: Hmm. and
0: I've never met a sex drive like that of a thirty year old single woman. It's phenomenal. (laughs) The idea that the idea that men men are like sexually frustrated because women are clamped up is so untrue. I was sort of rejected by so many men because they couldn't keep up with my libido. And equally I discovered that the idea that all men want to just have fun forever and don't want to become dads is also completely untrue but i had had really inculcated that view quite deeply and it took years to unpick it and realize that it wasn't a battle between men and women having children it should be a joint project and it shouldn't be a battle between you and the rest of your peer group if you don't want to have children like it should <laughs> like can we not can we not just open this up a little bit more and also that there are a lot of people who for reasons within or beyond their control Can't have children. And that's also something that I think is silenced if we don't talk about it in this kind of tricky, open way. And yeah, I'm a white, educated woman who was able to get biologically pregnant. Tick, 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 tick. Lucky me, I am in an incredibly privileged position. But that doesn't mean I don't have the right to talk about the fact that it can be complicated and hard. The floor is now open for anyone else to pick this up and run with it. I'd be thrilled. But I really wanted to kind of get in there and say, I think this is a phenomenon. I think it needs a name. This is the name I'm going to give it.
1: There's a lot of things there, actually, that I want to pick up on. So one of the things is the way that we are socialised, I guess, as men and women. And it's something that you talk about in mm. the book, as you say, about how women, women's sexuality is kind of ignored really it's not thought about as a thing and it's all about how men are these like deeply deeply sexual beings and and as you say you feel you know you do feel rejected you know when that transpires not to be the case because i'm sure we've all been there but um (laughs) the way that kind of power dynamic I guess plays out is very interesting and I think that it is a lie and it's a lie that I think I think when you're a young woman you feel that like by virtue of having a vagina you kind of have this power Mm. do you know what I mean yeah yeah you sort of have this power over men when in reality it's just it's just not true
0: see I think I when I was young I remember people saying to me if you like any man in the bar if you went up to him and said Do you want to have sex like 99% of the time they'd say yes that's not true men don't like it necessarily and my friend Simon called the called the idea that men have a high high libido than women the greatest act of gaslighting the world has ever known <laughs> it's just it's yeah. like this this narrative that basically allows men to take up a sort of powerful threatening or somehow more vigorous stance. The truth is, I am now in my mid-30s, and I, if I look around the heterosexual couples I know, and we're sort of within, you know, maybe a five or ten year age gap, almost all of those men would rather stay at home and watch telly or read a book or look at some weird aerial view map website of the British Isles. <laughs> than to go out and get laid and pretty much every woman I know would rather she would rather do something that felt electric and sexy and exciting you know the end of the jungle book where Mowgli is like taken away from the jungle to that boring village by the girl of the water like that that Mowgli myth I think is so damaging the idea that basically women come along and they make men boring I have known enough wonderful beautiful clever heterosexual men in their 30s that were way ahead of me in terms of getting boring <laughs> you know and uh, and also you know look to your gay friends like do you know gay men who are in happy committed relationships where they spend a lot of time talking about how they like their potatoes and what they're going to watch on telly that night or are they all th- desperately thrusting themselves against each other like it's just The idea that there is a male libido that has to be somehow, like caught, captured, and repressed by sort of the female organs—it makes me furious. I just wish I could—I could have saved myself so much heartache and sort of low self-worth if I'd been—if someone had just said to me, "Oh no, that's not true. (laughs) It's not true."
1: That sort of socialization it's it's all kind of interconnected isn 't it? because as you said before, you kind of feel when you 're younger that if you if you say that you want to have children or whatever it's sort of like the wrong thing it's it's yes. like not the yeah. fashionable thing to say about, and also you're taught as young women you mustn't allow a man to think that you Want to capture him and make him boring? You've got to pretend that you don't care. You've got to be all aloof. And I was never very good at that, which is probably why I've just had a baby at the age of (laughs) thirty-seven. It's weird, and I think it's very damaging that we teach young women to sort of repress what they actually want—be that children, be that sex, be that Mm. you know whatever that is. I think
0: it's damaging to young women and young men. Well, yes, I think it's like it's it it serves nobody any good if we do that do you remember a really problematic book called the rules
1: oh my god yes yes in, in i it, remember being when I was... 18 or not 18 like 20 i remember being at university yeah. i mean i was a bit nutso with men to be honest um yeah. well, uh, welcome aboard um <laughs> but then i but then i think that is because we're always told to like repress what we want and to keep up well i was you know, gonna say
0: yeah the it whole does premise...
1: create that
0: The whole premise of that book, which was American, and I know dating culture there is different, but the sort of premise was: if you can just be sort of deceitful and manipulative and aloof enough, keep all of the things that are precious and important to you—your principles, the hunger in your body, the desire in your heart—if you can just keep that secret for long enough, then you can get a man to fall in love with you, and then you're then you've got them, and you're safe. And it was. Vile. It's so horrible. Because what I only realised and I'm in the very lucky position that I've been able to do like work on this and I've got friends who will talk about this and I even had a therapist where I could open up about this. By keeping fundamental parts of your desire, psyche and sort of politics secret, you keep people who could potentially love you at arm's length. You know, you make it really hard to build up intimacy with someone if you can 't be honest about who you are and what you want and being honest and I say that brightly, being honest about who you are and what you want makes you so it makes you feel so vulnerable it's mm. frightening the day I finally admitted that I actually wanted to have a baby out loud to myself it felt like I just opened up a chasm of potential disappointment and sadness because what if i didn 't get it up been you know between of 25 and 30 I could say to people I you know men women my family everyone I'd be like I don't know maybe maybe not yeah. you know I that's you know and I would go to great lengths to appear as this sort of carefree like sometimes androgynous sometimes um vampish character who was really into casual sex and her job and going around the country and really outdoorsy. And look, I've swum through ice and I've split logs and I can make my, you know, all of this stuff to prove that I wasn't quote unquote maternal. And because admitting such made it put the possibility of a future into a sort of shared fragile space where I would want to build a family with someone else, a partner or otherwise, and I would want to get pregnant and that might not be possible. My mum got the menopause at 40. So even at 31, 32, I thought I might meet someone. It might take a year before we get to know each other. We might start trying. It might take two or three years to get pregnant. And then like 38, 39, and the menopause might have already started and it it might be too late. And my situation there is very extreme. And I made it even more extreme by my catastrophic thinking. But there is a maths involved there. It is scary to have to say, that you might want something that you might not get it's it's hard but it's really important if you can
1: well one of the points that you pick up on in the book is that what we're taught about women's fertility is based mm. on like 19th century french <laughs> monastery very very old and probably not necessarily that relevant information yeah. And I'm sure someone must have done some research since then. I like to think so, but then obviously well, we know that, you say that people don't do a huge <laughs> amount of research about women's health. So so A, we're kind of being taught stuff that is sort of bollocks. But also do you think like are we having the right conversations with young women about fertility? Because I feel like, you know, it's still quite an old fashioned approach and women need to be empowered with knowledge, right?
0: Yeah, I think we're having completely the wrong conversations with young men and young women about fertility. One, that there is and sexual health has come along a lot in the last sort of since we were at school. It has got mm. a lot better and relationship education is a lot better. But there is still and for understandable reasons, this sort of pervasive myth that you can get pregnant at any time and your fertility is like this uncontrollable beast that might erupt at any you know, any moment and if you even so much as sniff someone's sperm you're going to get pregnant and then you get to a time when you maybe want to start having children and you learn about your ovulation window and how long you're fertile for and it might be four or five days a month. (laughs) I am not suggesting that you go in and tell 13 year olds that actually they can only get pregnant for five days a month because that brings with it its own problems but I think we could encourage people to be more aware of how they ovulate, when, how regularly, uh, how that makes them feel, you know all of that stuff and to make that a conversation that men are aware, you know, or people who I identify and are raised as men to, to be aware of too, that, you know, what a, what does that actually mean to, ovul- like the the basic biology of ovulation? Like, I don't know if I really understood it until I was in my twenties. Like, I don't know how much I really understood how long I, how much of a month I was fertile for, what it would take to get me pregnant, what the likelihood of that was, was how my temperature would affect that, how what mm. I was eating and drinking would affect that. Like it was all I no idea. Literally
1: it's dark not. magic, isn't yeah, it? It's yeah. dark magic. Yeah,
0: for years. And um, I also think we are not talking to men and boys about their fertility as anything that that is finite mm. or or valuable or male fertility, your chances of reproduction, but also the likelihood of there being sort of problems and chromosomal sort of abnormalities, that increases as you get older as a man. And so the quality of your sperm and the likelihood of being able to have a a healthy full-term pregnancy and a healthy baby is important for men. Like They should be thinking about whether they have time. Whether they can put it off, whether they should maybe get their life sorted. Oh my God! I can't tell you the number of men who have told me in my life that they don't feel ready to have yeah. to have children. And, and I think that's
1: astonishing because they think women feel ready to have. Do you know what uh, I mean? But also, I think if any, if you were then, waiting for people to be ready, that the human race wouldn't exist anymore. <laughs> like
0: exactly. And also, if you don't feel ready then maybe address the things that you're yes. that would make you feel... You know, if, if your job is not in a situation where you feel ready to have children or your house or your health or your relationship with your own family, then don't just carry on as normal but insisting on your partner using contraception. Maybe address your work situation, your health, your attitude to your family and your housing. You know, I just think I felt like not feeling ready was a luxury I didn't have. I had to get ready. And that unfortunately meant maybe coming out of a relationship and maybe like working much harder than I had been before and maybe saying yes to things that I wouldn't have ordinarily, you know, I I put myself in a position where I was running full pelt to try and get ready. So I would be able to have a baby if and when the circumstances came about where I could. And so I think the finite nature of male Mm -hmm. fertility should be talked about more openly the complicated and fairly arbitrary nature of female fertility is something that we could talk about a bit more the fact that you have no idea if you can get pregnant until you either start trying or you have a major medical situation that that comes you know I had friends who only found out that they were infertile because they had another sort of medical complication like their appendix burst or something like that and then they found out and so I think there's this, because it's all sort of tucked away and unseen and hidden in your room and who knows, you're born with all these eggs, but who knows what's going to happen to them. We feel completely out of control of that. And actually, mm. could we put a little bit of money <laughs> and a little bit of time, a little bit of effort into researching I mean, female fertility now and male we fertility any, now. put
1: any any money and <laughs> any time into researching? Yeah, how the modern health, diet, but yeah, sort of change
0: in lifestyle, the way we live, pollution, all those things. I'm sure have changed. How yeah. long you're fertile for?
1: One of the main sort of points of the book is that you know you're you're sort of saying the way that we are taught about this stuff, the, the things that we are told. About women's and men's fertility, because we don't talk about men's fertility like at all, really. And the point that you're sort of making is that that allows men to sort of live as these these teenagers forever, with no, you know, they they don't feel like they have to think about it, and it and it all gets, you know, the whole question of motherhood and parenthood gets put on a woman.
0: Yeah, like, have you ever heard a man talk about their biological clock? But
1: they bloody have one. And have you like? I think have men you? talk about i think I've heard men talk about the fact that like they don't want to be old dads, for mm. example, so mm. they want to be like young enough and fit enough to be able to keep up with you know uh, a rampaging toddler um <laughs> i think I have heard men talk about that but I've heard a lot of women talk about. Oh but what if I can't? You know, what what if there is yes. something wrong with me, quote unquote, that prevents me from having children? And I have never ever ever heard a man talk about that. The only time I've ever heard a man talk about the fertility is friends of mine who who have had IVF.
0: And my partner said something really interesting, which is that he had never heard men talk about fatherhood until mm. some of his friends started becoming fathers. Fatherhood as a philosophical or theoretical idea did not come up for him. You know, and this is the thing that he came back to because I grilled him for the book. When he said, when we first met, I'm not sure if I want to have a baby, he really meant I've never thought about whether I want to have a baby. No one's ever asked me. I've never been asked to babysit. I've never been passed a baby. I've never been expected to look after like a niece or nephew. I've never been asked at like a wedding whether I want to have children. It just hadn't come up. People hadn't talked to him about fatherhood in the way that people had talked to me about motherhood for years. It used to sit in my year seven science lessons talking about baby names. I don't know many men who did that. You know, I interviewed Rob Delaney recently and he, you know, he talked about imagining his family, you know, imagining what kind of what his family of the future might look like in his 20s. But the process of becoming a father, <laughs> I don't think got discussed very much at all. And I feel like that is not to go back to one of the most overused Steinem quotes in the world, but we've dared to raise our daughters like sons, but have we dared to raise our sons like daughters? You know, have we dared Mm -hmm. to talk to young men and boys about being a dad and fatherhood and babies and their urge to have children and what, like, the softness, the gentleness, you know, the, the sweat, the terror, the blood. Like, we, I think... If we could just open that up a little bit, then men would be free. I'm not saying I want men to have all the angst and panic that I felt. I just want them to have the opportunity to inhabit the role of fatherhood as even just an idea before it starts happening around them.
1: <laughs> I'm sure you would have seen this in the news now. It made me laugh a lot at the time. It struck me as very odd. We talked about it on the podcast this week, in fact. Boris Johnson, our prime minister, saying that he was. In awe of parents dealing with lockdown. It's a very strange thing for a man who is himself a father (laughs) to say, as if he had no idea what parenting actually might entail. So I suggested this on Twitter and someone I know responded to it, Ashley Davis, um, who said that she'd had a conversation with one of her friends recently about how people think of mothering and fathering, like they mean really, really different things, don't they?
0: My friend Pete said this brilliant thing. He said, All I have to do is literally like push my child in a swing to be considered a good dad. And if you, as a mother, like ran out in the road and got hit by a car to save your child's life, people would ask why you let them run into the road in the first place. And it's so true. To be seen as a quote unquote hands on dad, the threshold is so fucking low. And to be seen as a hands on good mum, like, is just the absolute standard if you you Mm -hmm. know in fact you're going to be criticized if you're not seen as the totally devoted and in every way accomplished mother that Mm -hmm. you're meant to be whether that you know and I know lots of people feel loads of pressure around things like breastfeeding and when they go back to work and you know home education at the moment and all of this stuff but it's it's so gendered and it's so unfair and so yeah I think the way what Pete said really made me laugh because it came from a dad, that like, he was, he was getting praise that his female partner was never getting, even though at best they were t- taking an equal role. If anything, she was possibly doing more in their early years. And I mean, what can I say about that man? He's a fucking idiot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I know what to say about that man, is that I find it genuinely frightening that we are being led by a cabinet of people who were so disassociated from their own parents and are so disassociated from their own parenting. And yet they have the power to dictate the way people like you and me live our lives and people with far less privilege than I have. Mm -hmm. You know, the idea that Jacob Rees-Mogg, who proudly says that despite having six children, he's never, never changed, changed a, a nappy, nappy, would yep. dare to tell a single mother on a low income that she should have, like she should be able to balance a budget that includes buying nappies on, what is it, like £20.80 a week. If you get as family like that. How dare he? And, you know, I think if I'm being very charitable, I'd say, of course, you can't blame someone for their upbringing It's not his fault that he doesn't understand what Uh, like a quote unquote average family in the UK looks like. But I also think we shouldn't let those people make the decisions and make judgments, not just decisions, but to make judgments Mm. that then get fed into the discourse of the whole nation about irresponsible single mums or like, you know, um, selfish people are on benefits. And you just think you have no idea what you're talking about.
1: You talk about obviously actually having your son, like giving birth and then the sort of hardships of being a new mother. I mean, you, you had quite a hard time, didn't you, when your son was born? And I just wanted to sort of pick up on that, on, on some of the things you talk about, about what we could be doing as a society to mm. help new mothers a little bit. If I,
0: as someone with
1: all the manifest privileges
0: I had, I had family who lived in the same city as me. I had enough money to pay my rent and bills. I had a partner who was supportive if largely absent because of his work. If I found it hard, how on earth do people without those sort of supports and privileges do it? I genuinely don't know. If you have to go back to work after six weeks because you're the only Mm. person, if you're the single sort of income provider in your home and you you know you're in a low-paid undervalued job and you're a person of color so you're facing the sort of systematic racism of all sort of healthcare care and sort of industrial work and all of that stuff then yeah. it's really hard personally I found it really tricky just because it didn't look like how I thought it would look I used to walk to school and look into the windows of my neighbors and see Creamy faced women sitting in like lovely, low lit rooms, breastfeeding babies, watching telly and think, God, that looks nice. (laughs) I used to hear people talk about the moment they looked into their baby's face and just immediately fell in love. And I thought, God, that sounds nice. And I used to hear people talk about the sleep deprivation and the physical toil of it and think, I reckon I can handle it. And it was really hard. It was just really hard. I didn't fall in love immediately when I looked into my child's face. My love sort of grew slowly. I sort of say in the book that duty eventually became devotion, but it didn't happen. It wasn't like when I first met my partner and I wanted to stand on the roof and tell everyone that I was in love. It was like I had a constant nervous ticking list of responsibilities and fears. You know, I I spent probably... 30 seconds out of every minute wondering if he was still alive yeah. that's not like falling in love That's
1: <laughs> horrible <laughs> that, isn't it that's not it's how so you know horrible. the rush of
0: oxytocin is not is not that and i would you know walk under a tree and think what if that branch just falls down and hits us and he dies or what if i fall into this river and drown us or you know like he stopped breathing now he's breathing he stopped breathing now he's breathing no it, it was it was maddening and exhausting and all of what i'm saying is not news to anyone who's done it but it was sort of news to me as yes. someone who was in it for the yeah. first time and i think oh there's so much that we're doing wrong you know i think the closure of sure start centers and children's centers across the country should be a national scandal i think the under that sort of cuts to um, health visiting services should be a national scandal the way that midwives are treated in this country is appalling you know I know pregnant midwives who have to do 12-hour shifts with not even a chance to go to the loo because the NHS is stripped to its absolute bare bones we are a wealthy country it doesn't need to be this way and you could hear that every day of your life and it's still bears repeating we are a wealthy country it doesn't have to be this way we have decided to make the lives of certain people incredibly hard and the lives of other people incredibly easy and it makes me it boils my piss so what I would like is more funding for early years services they can do it in Germany they can do it in Scandinavia we could absolutely do it here but we haven't
1: I mean (laughs) I I, I gave birth in June so that was the end of the first lockdown but having a baby at the moment there's nothing like it's it's brutal it's absolutely brutal and you can't even go out and you know meet some local mums and have a coffee and like it, mm-hmm. it's brutal and i do worry a lot about the impact on the mental health of women currently going through that and and men as well to a, to a lesser degree but yeah predominantly yeah. new mums it's a fucking awful time
0: yeah pregnant men screwed their campaigning is is really important and they put it much better than i do but i do think at the moment the people who are really getting a raw deal of a lot of sort of under-researched and ill-thought-through policy are pregnant people and young parents. Because you are, I've known a few friends now who've had to give birth alone. And then they, I mean, yeah. that is just an unfathomable thing to me in itself. And yeah, then I didn't have letting, to do that, fortunately. But yeah, but it was, you, it's a, I had yeah. to
1: go to all my appointments by myself.
0: Oh, oh, appalling. I can't imagine it. I cannot imagine. I'm so sorry um but the the idea that you wouldn't have just a overheated sticky floored room with like two mats and a block of lego and some like overstewed milky tea and three other people to talk to if you don't even have that I think I would have absolutely lost it what you need to provide to make the difference between someone coping and not coping is not huge we're not asking for a huge amount of money or luxurious facilities or a complete radical overhaul of the way we think about parenting we just need some like basic safety nets <laughs> and the pandemic is nobody's fault but i think we're not thinking about it very
1: creatively so the book is published next week on the 11th so what what else have you got going on at the moment other than having Long conversations with people like me via Zoom.
0: Which is genuinely the nicest thing I could possibly ask for. The book's came out on Thursday, and then the day after, Friday the 12th, uh, we will be launching the first episode of The Panic Years, the podcast, where I will be having yet more of these long conversations with people. I have also, I wrote, and I'm very sorry to admit this, because it makes me sound like an absolute solid gold wanker, but I wrote a novel uh, this year, which will be out next year. And there is a Penguin Live event on the 18th of February where I will be interviewed by the wonderful Pandora Sykes about the panic years, about the book, Who and she's just been the most incredible champion of the book and is much better at interviewing people than I am. So that will be fun. And the big one is I've made a big uh, navy blue velvet suit with the panic years written across the back in orange lettering, which I'll be wearing on the day and walking around with my son. <laughs>
1: Amazing! Have you recorded all the podcasts already? I've done ten. Have you got any names you can you can drop? Oh yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. So some of the guests on the podcast we have got uh, Sarah Pasco talking about why we hate weddings. We have got Josie Long talking about pregnancy and early motherhood and what you know what it looks like after thirty-five. We've got Rob Delaney talking about fatherhood and libido, which is great. We've got Freddie McConnell talking about and. Um, the sort of beautiful, wonderful world of queer parenting. Nikesh Shukla, um, talking about how parenting may impact your career, the good, the bad and the ugly. Simon Mir talking about maternal fury. There's some great people. And the first episode is with Daisy Buchanan, talking about why she chose to be child-free. That's an all-star cast, I'm going to say. Isn't it an all-star cast? <laughs> I know, I feel like I'm like the rolling thunder review of of <laughs> Willies and Fannies. <laughs>
1: well, it's been very lovely to chat to you. Good luck with the book. Where can we follow you on Twitter? I already know the answer to that because I already follow you on Twitter, but can you tell the listeners, please?
0: I am Nell Frazell on Twitter, and it would be lovely to see you all there. And it's been a pleasure to talk to you. All I can say, as I always say in these times, is that... I am just talking from my own perspective and I'm not claiming to be right about any of this. I'm just trying to bring up the subject. And so if, you know, I don't mean to cause offence and I don't mean to be clunky in my use of language, but sometimes you, you do get a bit clunky when you're talking about personal things. Standard issue... For all women.